morning and welcome to our first general membership meeting for 2022. My name is Aaron Fox and I'm your GLAR 2022 president. Today's virtual GMM will touch on the city of East Lansing's housing study and form-based zoning through the city of Lansing. It has been approved for two hours of elective con ed. Please make sure to stay logged in the entire time and participate in all poll questions and be active throughout today's meeting in order to receive credit. Couple quick GLAR updates, non-list sales. There's been some upgrades made to the non-list sale process. Here's a quick video of MLS Chair Joe Vitale explaining those enhancements. Hello, I'm Joe Vitale, the 2022 MLS Chair, and I'm here to talk about non-list sales. Nonless sales have become a hot topic and we have some recent upgrades and enhancements that I think you'll all find beneficial. Previously, we weren't able to enter a nonless sale if we were involved in the ownership on either the listing or the sale, or maybe we didn't receive compensation and that's all different. A nonless sale is a sale generated by an MLS participant that is not currently listed in the MLS. For example, this could be an expired listing, could be a co-op listing with a non-member or out-of-area member, um, or even a for sale by owner where a member is participating in agent capacity. There are a few new requirements and I'd like to go over those with you. First and foremost, all non-list sales need to be entered into the MLS within 20 days of the closing, 20 business days of the closing. The data needs to include broker signature, listing import forms with all the required fields completed per property and signed by the broker, 10 photos required, which would include front elevation, kitchen, baths, living area, basement, outside, and exterior features. Room dimensions need to be added and proper square footage. The settlement statement needs to be uploaded and the purchase agreement or agency disclosure. Failure to meet any of these criteria will result in the sale being removed from the MLS. Accurate data helps us all to be more effective, especially for appraisals and market analysis. If you have any questions, please reach out to the association at 323-4090. Thanks for your time. Uh, now a quick NAR Code of Ethics reminder. We are in the first year of the current three-year cycle for 2022 to 2024. We also have upcoming GMMs February 24th. We'll cover home warranties and inspections. March 17th, GMM will have Dr. Lawrence Yoon with an economic update. Just so that you're aware, the source of content tracking is cemarketplace.net. Friendly reminder, please work safely and responsibly. Be sure you're practicing physical distancing and washing your hands. Thank you all for joining us today. Please join me in welcoming our first speaker, Andrew Fidoa with the City of Lansing. Andrew Fidoa is a planner with the City of Lansing's planning office for the last two years. After graduating MSU and before joining the planning office with the City of Lansing, Mr. Fidoa did zoning for three years in Flint. The Lansing Planning Office is committed to managing development through effective planning and zoning practices designed to enhance the quality of life in residential neighborhoods. Mr. Fito will be talking about districts, allowable uses for the form-based zoning and cover areas and where to find information and contact info on their website. Welcome, Mr. Fito. 
Thank you, and thank you for having me. I'll just uh, get right into it. Uh, bear with me while I share my screen. So our uh, form-based code was uh, approved by city council uh, March 8th and took effect May 1st. Uh, as we were starting to work with the code, we also realized um, and starting to work with uh, realtors as well as um, architects and civil engineers. Uh, there were some provisions that were a little bit stiff and or maybe did not um, quite read the way that we intended. So we put through a uh, amendment draft this winter and that just took effect January 1st. So there's a slightly different version from back in May, uh, but largely it's the same document. Formerly, uh, Lansing had a traditional zoning ordinance based on the separation of uses and emphasized land use over building form. Generally, that looks like residential neighborhoods are in one place, commercial areas are on the corridors, and industrial are set aside in a different area of the city. So there are um, this is a real big separation and it's not very neighborhood friendly and um, can sometimes have its own set of conflicts. A pure form, a pure form-based code emphasizes the building form primarily regardless of use. But Lansing's form-based code is actually a hybrid code that addresses both the land use and the building form. Uh, we really simplify, or we really have our, we really revolve around the, um, the building form and the siting and the setbacks and all that, but there are, are also some use for allowable uses, uh, permitted, conditional, or special, that really is trying to be context sensitive because this is quite a large change for our city. Uh, so we do keep in mind that some uses may not be compatible uh, in areas of the city when they abut each other, uh, but for, most, for the most part, they are kind of expanded and simplified. By organizing around build two lines, number of floors, percentage of built site frontage, and street and building types, there will be a more uniform development pattern. Uh, previously, and especially if you're in the city and you drive down our commercial corridors, you'll see one building right up against the street, uh, might be small, uh, might have a ton of parking, and then right ne next door, it'll have hundreds of feet of front yard parking, and then a tiny store way in the back, um, dangerous parking lots, uh, no pedestrian amenities, no landscaping. Uh, so we really, really want to, with redevelopment, bring that sort of stuff into conformity and be a bit more harmonic with each other. Some of the form-based code benefits that we anticipate are design standards to improve and protect community character, opportunities for the missing middle of the housing market. Uh, for the most part, single family neighborhoods are largely staying the same. But we also have some districts that allow for more duplexes, triplexes, uh, quadplexes, and small apartments. And if we get into the map a bit more, I can kind of uh, get into that. Uh, it's more effective at transforming a site or district. Uh, in the previous code, there were there's a lot of different a lot of uh, differentiation between zoning districts. You might have uh, F commercial zoning next to H industrial zoning. Uh, next to residential. And here we're kind of really um, creating districts and corridors and neighborhoods. Uh, so when redevelopment does come, it might have a, a greater impact at a whole on a district or um, area level. 
This will also more adequately protect neighboring properties than conventional zoning. Uh, in this form-based code, there are standards for buffering and um, screening next to residential neighborhoods. This also supports transit-oriented development and pedestrian safety along corridors. Again, those corridors are mostly where single-use commercial zoning, and now many of them are mixed-use that will allow for um, well, mixed-use development and also apartments directly on those corridors. So we're gonna have residential dwelling units close to our transit stops for CATA. The form-based code is also easier to understand with more graphics and more predictable results. We really try to get away from that sea of text, just dozens and dozens, hundreds of pages of uh, zoning text. And now there are more tables, there's more graphics to explain our provisions and what we mean by some of the standards in there. It can speed up development review. Uh, since those standards are kind of laid out with diagrams and also our um, site plans are reviewed administratively rather than through the planning board. Uh, so those, those, uh, those review processes are much quicker. It can lead to denser urban environments where appropriate. Again, uh, we're, we're really kind of expanding those uses and allowing for higher buildings, more dwelling units where appropriate. And we're kind of getting, we're hoping for a critical mass that makes Lansing more livable, walkable, and uh, more friendly to all types of users and uses. There are predictable yet flexible standards that provide certainty, which can help secure financing. Uh, there are those standards, there are those provisions, but there are also little caveats or little carve outs that, uh, especially if a uh, developer provides more uh, green space, for instance, they can maybe have some flexibility on that lot coverage. So while there are standards, there, we also recognize that every parcel is different, every development is, uh, is different, and sometimes there are maybe accommodations that could be made. The design standards are already, already established before projects are submitted. That's mostly in chapter 1246, which I'll go over a bit more later on, but people can see those architectural standards for the buildings and that building form. Uh, so they kind of see what the city is looking for before they submit a site plan and then get uh, replies back and then have to redo things and then you know kind of do that, uh, that cycle over and over. There's a wide array of uses permitted with more emphasis on the building types and site design. So again, there are, we are trying to focus on that form, uh, but we also kind of expand those permitted uses and what's kind of allowed by simplifying things. And also creates incentives. There's more flexibility allowed with the applicant provide certain benefits such as green design, like I mentioned a little bit earlier there. Uh, comparing the form ordinance and the form-based code just uh, generally and quickly, uh, residential, commercial, and industrial districts more or less remain at their current locations. Uh, we just expand what the, the form of development looks like and really simplify and expand the uses allowed. Uh, so they're a bit, uh, they're more compatible and kind of synergy with each other. Most single use commercial districts allow now for mixed use commercial, office, and residential uses. So again, when you're going down our corridors and you only see you know, a laundromat or a secondhand store or a superstore, now we can really kind of infill those gaps with a more variety of uses and allow for residential dwelling units now. 
single family residential districts remain single family. If anyone's gone into the comprehensive plan from 2012, we had what we call the pet map, the preserve, enhance, and transform. And that's where Lansing residents really told the planners and consultants what areas of the city they really wanted to preserve, which were their single family dis neighborhood districts, which they wanted to enhance. Those are our commercial and industrial districts. And that's why we now have these uh, form standards. And then also the areas of the city that they want to transform, which are primarily our commercial corridors. And that's why there's such a huge uh, leap between the old single use commercial and now these mixed use commercial corridors. All building sites and uses that were legally established under the prior zoning ordinance, but do not conform with the new form-based code are allowed to remain as grandfathered nonconformities. I know our office has been fielding a lot of realtor and developer questions about if a certain use or a certain development is allowed to stay in the form-based code district, if there is a, heaven forbid a disaster or an act of God. Um, so just as a blanket statement, uh, whatever was legally established can remain, uh, but there might be some, uh, there might be some uh, discussions to be had if they are no longer conforming with the form-based code. There's not a one-to-one -one relationship between former and current zoning districts. Uh, as for the administration, Uh, it's kind of broken down in these parts with districts, general provisions, approval, and administrative. Um, I, I think the real our people in the audience today are going to mostly be concerned about these districts and what's allowed in there. Uh, from the form-based code, you can find those in chapters 1243, 1244, and 1245. And a bit at the end, we'll get into where you can find the map, the use tables, and the district chapters. I mean, the form-based code chapters. A lot of our residents are gonna be concerned about general provisions and our landscape architects and civil engineers are gonna be mostly concerned about landscaping and parking, as well as the approval when they're submitting site plans. I'll get into the districts in just a moment, but briefly the chapter 1250 provisions covers um, anything from home occupations, temporary buildings and accessory structures, the keeping of animals. So a big thing that we see in especially our neighborhoods that have more urban farms is a interest in livestock. Uh, Lansing for what it is, is not really a farming community. Uh, so we do really prohibit uh, wild animals and livestock, but do allow for the keeping of hens. There is also a new provision in there for demolitions. This provides the city with additional control when authorizing a request to demolish buildings for the purpose of constructing non-required parking. Uh, Lansing is littered with surface parking lots. So we really hate, to, especially in the downtown area, we really hate to see historic buildings go down just for surface parking when it's pretty bountiful. Uh, so this gives the city a, a bit more uh, control and protection about saving our historic uh, um, fabric. This provision is in there for recreational vehicles, uh, vehicle storage, parking is a big thing in uh, front yard parking, for instance. There's new provisions for the outdoor seating uh, allowed by right in most commercial zones. And then uh, one thing that 
I'm not sure if this audience uh, ever fields questions about marijuana, but currently that is governed by the other ordinance, chapter 1300, which still taps into the old zoning districts. Right now, that is in the process of being heard and updated to reflect form-based zoning districts, but is not currently approved yet. So if there's any questions about that, I'd be happy to take those at the end and maybe pass along some information about what might be passed. Chapter 1252 covers landscaping. This is something mostly absent from the former zoning code. Uh, and if it was required, it was pretty basic. Now this chapter regulates uh, plant species, plant sizes and spacing. There's a prohibition on invasive species or what is considered invasive in Michigan. There's new provisions for interior site landscaping. So between the sidewalk and the building, and also a big thing is now parking lot landscaping, which was not mandated before, but now there are provisions in there to um, have uh, street or trees rather, and uh, flower beds, and really trying to bring up the the appearance of our of our development and our districts. These were crafted for pedestrian environmental benefits. So depending on how big a parking lot is, they will have to provide for um, either uh, stormwater capture or uh, recycling. And also there are provisions in there to really mandate pedestrian crossings and markings inside parking lots, especially going into the store. So we don't really have those as many conflicts between cars and people walking into stores and uh, businesses. Our main goal is to break up that sea of parking with planting islands for stormwater retention and to reduce the urban heat effect. Uh, there is a provision in there that would have street trees, if not in uh, parking planting islands, they will be along the border of the parking for those benefits. Also, there are buffering and screening requirements when a parking lot is within 10 feet of a residential uh, used um, parcel or with a house on it, essentially, uh, just so we don't have the as many conflicts with um, headlamp glare, uh, noise, and some of that trash from commercial buildings sometimes. Chapter 1254 covers off-street parking. Largely, these calculations for parking are based on residential, at, on types such as residential, place of assembly, office, retail, restaurant, industrial, et cetera. Uh, these are mostly uh, holdovers from the old zoning code, which we could take another look at because some of it is a bit of excessive. But there are many stipulations in there to reduce parking, such as lot sharing, available public parking in the vicinity, and allow for employer incentives for employees to use public transit, bicycles, or to live in the neighborhood. Um, we really are trying to cut down on surface parking lots that are maybe a bit excessive based on those parking minimums. There are also in certain districts, uh, just a blanket statement for uh, a reduction in that grand total based on if that district is uh, urban or pedestrian focused. There is a chapter, or I mean, a section of that chapter just for bicycle parking. So pretty much every new development, uh, especially of a commercial or industrial nature, a uh, business nature essentially, will require bicycle parking spots. 
and to limit excessive parking, the number of parking spaces can only be exceeded by 20% of the minimum. So unless there's a very valid reason that has to go through the zoning administrator, uh, people can't just keep putting in a surface parking lot because they believe they need it if it's above our minimums. So getting into how the form-based code actually works, we'll want somebody will wanna check the zoning district map first, and I'll get into that link in just a moment that really is interactive and helps you find directly what you're looking for. Determine the street type. This is a map that is on our, our page as well that you can, uh, any developer can check, and that's mostly, mostly who's gonna be concerned with it for those redevelopment projects as the developer or their civil engineer. And then it, as for the code, you're gonna to want to review the master use table. This lays out the permitted conditional special uses. And then from there for developments, they're going to wanna follow the site layout requirements that has, that has to do with building massing, the height frontage and upper floor setbacks, the building placements with those setbacks, parking configuration where those parking facilities are allowed, uh, largely getting away from the front parking configuration and putting that in the side or the rear. And then there's also chapter 1246, the architectural standards, which goes a bit beyond these uh, district regulations to really get into the floor heights, the fenestration, the allowable materials on the building, the roof types, articulation, access, and where uh, mechanical and service equipment goes. So I'm gonna skip a little bit ahead because uh, I know I, I have a, a link to share with the, um, the map. So we'll go right into step three. The use table is in every, those chapters, 1243, 1244, and 1245, the residential, uh, commercial, and special. But there is also a allowable use table that really is comprehensive. That kind of breaks it down by these overarching uses and then lays out if they're allowed and if there's any conditions. Largely, these are very basic conditions about if they're allowed on certain street types or if they're a certain something like a uh, uh, vehicle sales, for instance, there's more conditions there to put in more screening requirements. So they're not so detrimental to the built environment. I'm just gonna quickly get into a question that I saw. Uh, there many times a homeowner will expand their driveway without a permit. Is this loud under the code? Um, no, first, I mean, if it's, if they're expanding their driveway to meet the width of their garage, it is allowed without a permit. But if they're trying to expand in the, especially in the front yard, uh, that's a no go, or they'll have to talk to building or public services about it. Uh, as an extension of that, if they want to expand their driveway out into the backyard past the garage, that's something that, that is allowed, but we would want to talk about that with the zoning administrator. So uh, an easy way of saying that is we really encourage people to talk to the zoning administrator because every lot's different. Every parcel is set up a certain way. Um, so it really is kind of a case by case basis. Getting back into the code, um, again, going back to that kind of uh, readability uh, nature of the code, this really kind of gives a district uh, feel of what redevelopment should look like and what we're really hoping for as a city. And then it describes the intent and gets into those site layout requirements. 
So for example, if we're talking about MX3, which is Old Town, Rio Town, and Michigan Avenue, this gets in, this is what it would look like for the building height. There's a minimum and a maximum. There is a required upper floor step back. So if the building was is within so many feet of a, resi a neighboring residential district, um, anything above the second floor has to be an equal amount of distance away from the <laughs> residential district. I know that's a little confusing, but uh, as you can see in that, if you can maybe hopefully see in that diagram, uh, that C, um, whatever's closest to that residential district has to remain at two stories, just so that if there is a six-story building, that's not towering over a uh, residential house too closely. Um, we have provisions in there for the build two line. So before there was a step, setback. So as long as you were meeting that setback, you could have your building uh, 50, 100, 150 feet away from the right of way. Um, but now we're really trying to really try to bring those buildings up to the sidewalk, make it more pedestrian friendly, make it a bit more um, standardized and put that parking in the rear. As for step five, architectural standards. Again, this is going to mostly be for the civil engineers, but we get into the projections, the fenestration of buildings, the allowable building materials, the facade, and um, example building types, just so there's an understanding of what buildings need to uh, not necessarily look like, but there's that, uh, that range of um, standards. So getting into the district summaries, there's a lot, I will preface this as saying there's a lot of them. Uh, the former planner that I kind of took over for and the consultants really got into the land use table, the master plan, uh, and really created a, a lot of districts that could be condensed. That's a change we're hoping to make in the near future. Um, but right now, a lot of these districts are pretty similar. So I hope nobody gets a little uh, flustered or confused about the just the amount of districts. More, more or less, they are pretty similar to each other. For instance, suburban commercial and mixed-use urban corridor are pretty similar, and they abut or are neighboring each other on our commercial corridors, largely south, south uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard, Cedar Street, and uh, Pennsylvania. These are more uh, designed for the single tenant or strip commercial, but again, only allowing for um, one double bay parking out in the front. So we're really getting, even for our most suburban style uh, commercial corridors, that parking in the front is being minimized as much as possible to really get those parking lots to the side and the rear. Uh, mixed use urban corridor allows for um, mixed use, which we really encourage, especially around our transit stops, but is not required. And it doesn't necessarily have to be mixed use. They could also be apartment buildings on these corridors as well. These buildings front the street and only one bay of front yard parking is allowed along suburban or arteri arterial corridors. So again, really trying to stress that the days of front yard sees of parking are over and we're really trying to get to a pedestrian and standardize uh, uh, developments. Uh, MX1, mixed use neighborhood center. 
these are around uh, specific intersections around the city. These are your, usually your corner stores around residential neighborhoods. Buildings are going to front the street and uh, also allow for mixed use. So the corner store can allow for apartment buildings above. Really trying to um, make uh, those neighborhood um, intersections really uh, worthwhile and beneficial for the surrounding neighborhood. I'm going to uh, assume that poll went up for everyone. Should I allow for uh, people to take that real quick? You can go ahead and keep talking, Andrew. All right, thank you. Uh, MX2, Mixed Use Community Center. Again, uh, very similar. These are those important intersections, important areas of the city, but they're more of a district wide. These are for Frandor and Logan Square and um, Cedar and Miller area. Um, they very expand or very variety of uses. They expand um, uh, dimensions and setbacks and such to really be um, to really realize these are people coming in from neighborhoods and the surrounding even neighboring cities to come shop. Um, or play or do whatever they really need to do. MX3, which I briefly touched on, are Rio Town, Old Town, and Michigan Avenue. These are, the redevelopment is really to uh, allow for dense, active, urban, and mixed use uh, development close to downtown. It's kind of those, uh, if too, downtown's a little too busy for you, these are very vibrant districts around uh, and more, a bit more, uh, residential focused. Downtown One Urban Edge is the, as you might have known, uh, the edge of downtown, especially the uh, residential neighborhoods north and west of the downtown core. It recognizes that some of these buildings have been converted to office, but really allows for the um, residential, especially single family or duplexes or that missing middle to remain uh, and not really encourage redevelopment. These will retain the historic houses and, uh, but also allow for conversion to low intensity uses. And this is a transition uh, area between downtown and some of the more um, single family residential neighborhoods. Downtown, downtown two urban flex is the area largely bordered by, um, or east of, the river and east of downtown, I should say, and around Cedar and Larch and Saginaw down to Kalamazoo. A lot of this through plan prior planning efforts was industrial, uh, but if you've gone down in that area lately, you may have noticed that there are really zero industrial uh, businesses, but it's really close to the heart of downtown and the center of our city. So we really took a, a, a very, an opportune moment to really expand the uses and allowable building types in this area to kind of transition from vacant lots and old unused industrial buildings to a mix of residential, commercial, uh, research and development, light industry, kind of new economy and entertainment uses. So it's one of our most uh, uh, varied districts. And then downtown 
three, the downtown core is our main uh, heart of downtown. This will be the highest density and uh, has no height maximum. And uh, it's just very walkable and mix of uses with active storefronts. We've also made single use parking lots, a special land use. So really trying to minimize any new surface lots that will have to go through a, a longer process and more scrutiny. So we don't have these big craters of surface lots in our downtown area. And with the expanded form-based code allowable uses and building types, we really hope for new infill redevelopment that uh, is pretty ripe for uh, new residential, new commercial, new retail, new office, uh, and hopefully get away from these, uh, these breakups in the urban fabric downtown. Industrial, this is one of those areas that probably could be condensed into two, um, but for whatever reason, it's three. Our suburban industrial is mostly those pockets um, north of town by the railroad and the southeast corner around Miller and Pennsylvania uh, that are kind of a kind of a campus setting of industrial that look largely like that picture. Uh, this can range from light to medium to kind of heavy in industrial uses that aren't suitable uh, next to residential developments. Uh, so they're kind of clustered kind of by themselves. So again, we're kind of being context sensitive to Lansing that we want to move towards a form-based code, but there are certain realities in our city that uh, still require a separation of uses. Uh, industrial two is usually the, or is largely the GM plant downtown and north of Old Town. It's a range of industrial uses, but are largely confined to the building. And then industrial three are our urban industrial. These are our historically industrial sites within the city that do kind of have that, um, that development design of the 20s and 30s, especially around Hazel Street and north of uh, Old Town as well. Uh, but they're also, if not uh, maybe good for industrial development, they do provide for adaptive reuse and could uh, provide for a conversion to residential dwelling units. Then there's uh, Institutional One and Institutional Two. Uh, these are mostly centered to our educational, government, and medical facilities. Largely right now, they are Sparrow Hospital downtown and McLaren Hospital to the southeast that just got developed. Um, but we're really trying to um, get away from those kind of a suburban uh, business park designs and kind of make them more interwoven with the neighboring residential and commercial areas. So they're not such a, I guess, sea of industrial or institutional uses that one has to drive to. We're really trying to make them more uh, accessible to transit and the neighborhood. So the one that really can be condensed is all of our residential. Uh, we got a little bit too specific about certain areas, certain neighborhoods of the city, uh, but largely industrial one, two, and three are the same areas of the city, mostly in the Southeast and Southwest uh, wards, uh, a bit less density for single family, a, more of a sub uh, subdivision design or rural characteristics. Um, one thing that was in our old code was, or the one that got passed um, 
March and took effect May was these minimum and maximum heights. They kind of varied across the board, which would make uh, houses non-conforming for no real reason. So with this edit and with a future looking to condense these, we made them the exact same across the board. So we don't have some of our uh, single story houses become non-conforming for no real reason. As an extension of that, R4 and R5 are single family, uh, but more of the urban uh, neighborhoods of our city. The biggest difference is gonna be your R6B. This allows for multiple family, especially along corridors, but in between um, some of our commercial, core, commercial areas that can be up to six units, specifically in R6B. So that's really where our missing middle uh, dwelling units can are ripe for redevelopment. If there are, uh, sadly, back in 2008 to 2014, uh, during the recession, we saw some homes go down. And so there are parcels that are vacant. Uh, if they haven't found a use yet, they would be ripe for that missing middle um, opportunity for redevelopment. RMX is our residential areas largely separating um, or largely as kind of a buffer between uh, higher intensity corridors and the residential neighborhoods. This allows for a variety of housing types from single family that may be existing, so it's not non-conforming, but also duplexes, that missing middle up to eight units or so, but also small apartment buildings. Um, but again, that parking is, especially for our apartment buildings, that, part, that parking is in the rear and really trying to be uh, pedestrian focused and uh, part of the neighborhood. Multifamily campus are those areas largely developed in the 60s and 70s, uh, big plots of land that have uh, a variety or numerous apartment buildings kind of laid out in a campus setting. These mostly just are made to make those, um, those districts conforming because uh, they were largely developed under a, a zoning district that is no longer in use and hasn't been in use for a long time. Um, and then a new one that we see is adaptive reuse. These are our formal, former school sites and also some churches that uh, unfortunately city, the Lansing public school system has seen condensation or condensing and uh, uh, some of our old school buildings are no longer used. And then they really face some challenges by being large uh, lots with land or green, landscaping and uh, uh, an old building that really needs some love. So we've really expanded the allowable uses, especially for multifamily residential, but also allowed for new housing, either single family or duplexes elsewhere on that school property site if it doesn't get split. Uh, so to really make it dynamic and uh, ripe for redevelopment. So getting into resources, again, uh, the first uh, version of this took effect May 1st, and then a new amendment draft was just passed and is now in effect. That link is going to, uh, lansingmi.gov slash 374 slash zoning is going to be your best spot for information. Uh, there's a little screen grab there to the right that shows there's an interactive uh, text document. There's a allowable use table and that street typology map to really get into the weed of weeds of things. Uh, but above that a little bit is that Lansing Parcel Viewer. It's an interactive zoning map. That's gonna be everyone's best bet to find the zoning for a specific parcel. And if I can 
reshare my screen real quick. Uh, this is our Lansing parcel viewer. Um, you're going to want to turn on Lansing tax parcels. And just for example, I'm going to share uh, one of my neighbors that are near me. So if anyone wanted to con confirm the zoning, and my office is happy to take phone calls, but this really uh, is easier to use. You just type in your address. That takes you to the parcel. And then you can turn on the form-based code um, layer. Oops, excuse me. And that shows you what that zoned as. And then you can really get an idea of that what's near it. Um, if a perspective um, prospective buyer is interested and they don't aren't really sure what's allowed nearby, you can kind of give them an idea. Um, and if anyone in the audience sees any materials or handouts that would help us explain any part of the form-based code or its chapters, please let us know. I'm always trying to make this easier for people to understand and read through. So I, I would be happy for any input. And with that, uh, thank you for your time and allowing me to speak. Um, again, that link is uh, right there, 374-zoning. And any questions can be sent directly to my email. And I'd be happy for these slides to be shared. Andrew, we do have some audience questions for you right now. Thank you. So I'm trying to take uh, Mr. Lums about, um, are we seeing any similar levels of increased efficiency in the approval process with the hybrid type code? Uh, administratively, where especially when people have um, maybe a rendering or an idea, but not a full uh, set of site plans, we're getting really quick feedback to them about what's allowed or what we would like to see with um, some of those site layout requirements. Uh, but also I think uh, administratively, Sue Statuak, our zoning administrator is seeing uh, a reduced time of site plan review, um, especially when it goes out to, um, uh, when she forwards it on to our other departments like building safety or public service, which maybe doesn't touch the form-based code. But she's with this this code. She's uh, able to really send those on quicker than she was previously. I have a question there for, uh, there's trouble with the website link to work. Uh, I will try to, I will double check that, but I believe that is the one. Uh, if you are having any trouble, you can also go to lansingmi.gov slash planning. That takes you right to our um, division site. And from there you can click on zoning. 
And then uh, what is the junkyard on Cedar Street near downtown? I'm having a little trouble, trouble picturing that. Uh, if you would wanna email me a screen grab or uh, an address if you have one and we can look into that a bit more. And uh, Mr. Lum asked if there, if BSNA, the zoning code field still reflects the previous code, is there a timeline for those fields to be updated? I would love to have an answer to that. <laughs> uh, it's been a little trying to get with BSNA just because they're a, a separate company, they're a contractor for us. Um, I will say that we are in discussions and uh, right now there's a yearly um, update of zoning changes and parcel changes to reflect uh, lot splits and lot combinations that is done with the assessing and our IT and uh, the zoning office. So once we get that uh, situated, uh, probably in March, we will be sending the entire parcel list to BSNA and really stress for them to update that old code. So it's easier for realtors and uh, developers to see uh, uh, the zoning code that's current. So they're not seeing those um, the old and new kind of um, contradict each other. Ah, Freeman, so close to Old Town. Um, yeah, they've, I think that's the one you're mentioning. The, that one has been around for over a hundred years. Uh, it was in, it was, uh, it was there before we even had a, the first zoning code. Uh, so right now it's kind of uh, legally non-conforming more or less but we are really on them, especially when we see um, uh, debris or those huge stacks of scrap going above the fence that's there. We're in discussions with them to kind of push it back or kind of separate things so there's not such an eyesore. Uh, but unfortunately, yeah, it, from our point of view, view, since it's been around for over hundred years, it's legally non-conforming. We saw another discussion about uh, BSNA. Yeah, as soon as I will try to update that. So there's not those contradictions as soon as I can. All right, excellent. Thank you very much, Mr. Fidoa. We greatly appreciate it. Um, up next, we have um, Tom Fehrenbach with the city of East Lansing. Welcome, Tom. Uh, Tom is an East Lansing native, MSU graduate, and since graduating in 2001, he's found his passion for community building. After nearly a decade in the private sector, he decided to pursue his career in economic and community development. He served as manager of the economic development for the city of Palo Alto, California from 2010 to 2016. After finding his way back to East Lansing, Tom joined the city of East Lansing as the Community and Economic Development Administrator and currently serves as Deputy City Manager and Director of Planning, Building, and Development. Mr. Fehrenbach will be discussing some key takeaways from the recently completed Housing Target Market Analysis and Housing Strategic Plan. 
the, and the steps the city is taking to address challenges outlined in their near-term action plan. Good morning, Mr. Fehrenbach. Good morning, Aaron. Thanks for having me and good morning, everybody. Um, thanks for giving me the, the chance to share with you um, what is an important uh, project for the city of East Lansing. Um, let me see here. I'm sharing the wrong thing. Hold on one second here. Okay, so uh, the city of East Lansing recently completed a housing study and a housing strategic plan. Um, and that is really the goal today is to kind of share with you our key findings in terms of the study um, and sort of what the, the near term actions that we're, we're gonna be undertaking. Um, there's a lot to this study and I would welcome you to um, visit our website, uh, cityofeastlansing.com slash housing study, where you can find all of the, the documents, hundreds and hundreds of pages to, to peruse through, as well as uh, a lot of historical documents, um, as well as, as obviously housing in a city that's been around since 1907 is gonna always be a, a, a big topic for, for us and always something that we need to continually look at um, as we try to plan for the future. So we completed a target analysis, target market analysis in October of 2021. Um, and really the main, the main thrust of, of, of this uh, study was to try to determine how best to diversify uh, the types of housing and the types of people that, that are living in East Lansing. Obviously as a, as a college town, um, the demands, uh, the market demands from, from students uh, who often, um, you know, have the support of their parents to uh, rent, um, you know, per bed, it really puts a lot of pressure on our market. And, and so we are looking ultimately for ways to, uh, to welcome other segments of the market uh, and to make sure that our market is accessible and attainable. Uh, and that was really the key thrust of this TMA was to kind of figure out, you know, who are the most likely people, what are they looking for, uh, and ultimately then create a strategy to, uh, to figure out how we can make that happen from an economic standpoint, from a development standpoint, um, in a way that's really aligned with, with our community's goals. So lots of conversations, uh, even, even, you know, prior to the, the analysis, um, we had several conversations with our council and planning commission. Uh, and of course, we were just about to enter into the study in March of 2020, uh, when we had to totally retool our expectations based on COVID and kind of figure out how to, how to reset the decks, um, but ultimately leading to this completed study, uh, along with uh, a number of appendices that are really interesting stuff. Uh, I'll get into the highlights here, but if you wanna get into the weeds on your own, I would certainly welcome that. Um, but, but obviously lots of conversations at our planning commission and our housing commission and ultimately leading to a joint meeting of the two of those, uh, many conversations with council ultimately leading to uh, this, this uh, document is really a short-term strategic plan or our near-term action plan, um, which I will get into. Um, So in terms of the key takeaways from the study, I think there's about 13 of them. 
Um, and some of them, uh, you know, most of them are pretty intuitive, really, in terms of, um, you know, things that we kind of expected to, to come out of this, but it's really good to quantify some of these things and have an understanding based on, you know, housing experts who do this all around the state and in various parts of the country, um, you know, to really affirm some of what we, what we believe. Uh, and the first takeaway is that there really is ample opportunities for student housing, um, ample supply. Um, the, the, the biggest sort of key in this is that the, the number of beds that we've added to the marketplace that are geared really towards students in, in the last five years, it's you know over 2000 um, has really outpaced the growth of enrollments. Um, so that's one big point, but ultimately, um, you know, the fact that we've added so much density uh, over the course of, of time um, that's that's essentially geared towards students, uh, along with our neighboring opportun our opportunities for students in kind of neighboring uh, jurisdictions, uh, you know, ultimately triangulating multiple data sources. Um, you know, our, our consultant and team has, has uh, pretty strongly stated that, you know, the, the the future of housing in East Lansing, and as far as you know, opportunities for students uh, has really been met. And at this point, it's really thinking about you know how to how to redevelop some of what exists um, to continue to provide that. Now we do, of course, went back to the beginning here. I don't know how to run my slides. Now, in saying that, uh, we do have. Uh, also a significant attainability problem. Um, and again, I think a big, a big uh, portion of, of the reason why is because of the, the pressures from you know, the, the student market who can, can afford you know, pretty high rents on a per bed basis. Um, and that sort of has the effect of you know, putting additional and significant pressure on kind of the more affordable aspects of, of our market. Um, what's interesting is that it's really not just about renters, it's also about buyers that want to move to East Lansing. And so we determined that if we can provide some options for new renters and buyers uh, at the below market rates, that we could attract significant kind of uh, new, new people um, to our marketplace. That's a big takeaway. Um, the third really hits to kind of, you know, a lot of the goals of the study. Uh, and it's really to increase the diversity and equity of, of, uh, of our city. And, you know, based on this study and based on the analysis, the best way to do that is through making housing more attainable. There's a direct correlation between uh, providing opportunities for folks that are you know, both low to moderate income, but also, you know, as it, as it pertains to, you know, 80% AMI, but also as it relates to just this, um, you know, sort of the, the missing middle that, uh, that Andrew kind of talked about a little bit as well. So by, by providing opportunities to, to make housing more uh, affordable, more attainable, um, ultimately we will help to address uh, some of the equity issues that, that, that we have, you know, obviously um, they're significant and, and we need to focus on that um, over time. And it's not something that's a quick fix, but this is one of the strategies I think we'll get into during our near-term 
housing housing portion, uh, the action plan, uh, where we will really get into some of the strategies that, that we will uh, go go into. How so? There's a question here. How does the new MSU policy that some students must live on campus affect the study, or was it taken into account in the study? Uh, it it was. It was noted in the in the study, but obviously the effects we, we aren't really going to, to see until uh, that policy unfolds. Um, and ultimately, we're, we're not going to be able to really truly see the effects until we're kind of in a non-COVID or post-COVID or, or whatever the future holds in terms of that particular um, situation. It's definitely something we noted. It's definitely something we're going to continue to have to, um, uh, you know, continue to have to analyze and, and track, but uh, not something that this particular study uh, really provided insights in other than, you know, the expectation that it may reduce some of the, the, the pressures of the, um, of the rental market in terms of housing because more people will be living longer on campus as opposed to off campus. Okay, so Another key takeaway is that we are losing our market share to neighboring uh, municipalities. And I think uh, a, a main feature of this takeaway is that it's probably mostly due or in part due to availability. Um, you know, our, our, as I'm sure all of you are, are aware, the, the inventory in East Lansing has, has been very low for quite some time. And we don't have a lot of uh, a lot of opportunities, especially in that missing middle part of the, the market. Um, and so that's a, that's a you know it's a factor that turns a lot of people away from East Lansing into other other places. Um, and um, you know ultimately, from a specific East Lansing perspective, I think capturing more of that market share would would help us to be more uh, diversified and therefore more resilient to, to changes in the in the economy. Also, no surprise, you know, we have very high movership rates, um, largely due to the fact that, you know, we're, we're a college town and we have students that come here uh, for, you know, four years and then, and then move away. And obviously, well, I don't know if it's obvious, but that's certainly something we're trying to work on in terms of having more opportunities for students to think of, of East Lansing and frankly, the greater Lansing area as a place to, you know, have a career and, and build, build a, a life and have a family and all of that. Um, and so that is one of the, the things we ultimately are trying to address through, um, through this understanding. But what's further been interesting is that the movership rates are not just students. Um, and that was one of the, the insights of this, this effort is that really the movership rates are high across all our income, housing, tenures, and age brackets. And they're significantly higher across all of them than Ingham County as a whole. Um, and that may be part and due to the, the fact that, uh, due in part to the fact that, you know, we are a university town and, and a lot of people that, that come here to live are connected to the university for a period of time and then Maybe I have, have uh, other opportunities in other areas of the country, but it's definitely something that, um, you know, we, we want to think about in terms of, you know, what can the city do? How can we um, effectuate planning uh, that, that may allow for folks to, to see this less as a transitory kind of stop in their career 
and more as a, a place to kind of find a permanent residency. And that's something that's um, near and dear to my heart, having lived here, um, gone to MSU, and then moved to California where I was for 15 years. Um, and, um, you know, making the decision to come back here was, was largely in part to, you know, the fact that I have a large family in the area, the, the fact that, you know, our, our children that are growing up in East Lansing can have the opportunity to, um, you know, have, have good housing and, and have, you know, access to parks and different types of amenities. So, you know, from the personal perspective, as well as kind of the planning perspective, I think there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot we can work with in terms of our, of our assets uh, to build upon, uh, to, to help, you know, help to share that narrative uh, to more people and ultimately work, work on this. Um, but again, I think it points back to the need for addressing different types of housing uh, and different um, stratas of kind of pricing that just don't exist or exist in a very small way in East Lansing right now. So most of the buyers in our market are looking for detached single family homes. Although demand does exist for townhomes and other attached housing types, if it's provided with the right amenities. And I think that um, from, from my perspective, part of the reason that we glean this from the study is that most of what you see in terms of for sale product in East Lansing is detached single family homes. Um, and so our market does not have a lot of uh, townhomes or other types of like attached housing um, for, for buyers. And I feel strongly that if we could create those opportunities, the demand is in the, is in the marketplace. Um, but that may be more of an intuition of mine than, than, something, um, than something that we can back up with data. Um, seventh takeaway is that the new renters in the markets, um, especially the, um, the non-students, I think we were kind of targeting here, they do pre prefer attached units. Um, so the, uh, you know, folks are looking for kind of the, the more multifamily type products um, for a variety of reasons. Uh, but they're not necessarily looking to rent um, kind of the single family homes here in East Lansing. And again, that may be due in part to the type of um, inventory that we have in terms of, uh, in terms of single family rentals. Um, but, but ultimately, I think it also speaks to the type of lifestyle clusters that are looking to, um, to rent in, in East Lansing. It's really across the board, but, but um, most of them from, from our uh, intuition from the study uh, are, are preferring kind of the, you know, kind of the urban um, single multifamily lifestyle with the amenities, of course, that come along with that. So this is probably not a surprise. I mean, the, the students in our, in our market um, often, um, you know, don't have very high or have very low incomes on, on paper because they're, uh, they're like I was when I was 19, um, you know, kind of building up uh, most of what, what uh, we have in the way of resources are provided by our families uh, and or, you know, our ability to have, uh, have jobs in the local area. Um, and so, 
you may be aware that you know that particular pressure um, puts a lot of uh, um, you know changes the dem demography of our city quite quite um, uh, significantly, and uh, but ultimately you know the upper income population is really made up of families and retirees uh, in in East Lansing. So this is kind of going to the first part of that point, which is that singles make up the lower income population. And obviously it's largely due to the presence of MSU students, not entirely, um, but um, you know, again, when we're a city of about 50,000 uh, people and we have you know, about half of those folks are, are students, that's, uh, that makes for a lot of interesting uh, demographics um, and behavioral dynamics and everything else. So. Uh, definitely, you know, one of the realities of being uh, a college town, and all the good and and uh, not so good stuff that comes along with that. So we do know that um, there's higher demand than supply of the attached units. Um, so uh, that we have about a five percent differential on on a, on you know what the demand is versus what what the supply ultimately is in, in East Lansing. One of the difficult challenges that we have is that you know the new uh, the new things that are built tend to attract students and so um, you know if we're really trying to be more diverse in terms of our um, our, our the types of people that are that are able to live in East Lansing um, you know students tend to rent by the bed they tend to have you know the support of their parents and so they put some artificial pressures on you know what the market can bear in terms of cost, and uh, again, I think that's you know a theme that we see throughout the study, and certainly something we're um, we're cognizant of. On the other hand, we also don't want to discriminate against students, and we have uh, actually ordinance and law on the books that prohibits us from doing that. So really, the only um, the only ways that we can try to uh, help um, help welcome kind of the non-student folks is to um, is to try to focus on policies and programs that support low to moderate income, support the 55 and over uh, clientele, uh, and also support owner occupied uh, uh, residences. And, and you know that's it's fairly limiting, but uh, we do have some strategies and we'll get to those in a few minutes. So we do have a significant market potential. There's people that want to be here um, across all spectrums of, of, uh, of the market, but it's specifically singles and young professionals across all income brackets. Um, and I think, um, you know, with some of the recent happenings in terms of, you know, MSUs uh, and technology being, you know, transferred over into commercialization uh, and, companies uh, figuring out how to pull talent out of the, the university and create opportunities. Uh, we are hopeful that this is going, this is a shift that's gonna continue to, to move. Uh, obviously the Federal Credit Union has done a fantastic job of figuring out that, that paradigm and they're making a big investment um, in downtown with a seven story office building that's currently being developed. 
Uh, also, um, TechSmith, a uh, company that's currently in Aladdin Township, is consolidating a headquarters uh, in East Lansing on the campus of, of MSU uh, where Spartan Village is. Uh, and, and that is also, I think, a really positive step forward and so, sort of some of the, the market forces that are creating um, demand and creating this market potential, certainly for East Lansing. So, um, you know, obviously most of what we've seen in terms of recent development, um, specifically downtown with the, you know, the high density, high rise apartments uh, with mixed use on the ground floor um, has been really geared towards students and kind of the, the way that they, the way that they can within our, our structure. Uh, we do require that anything that's built um, um, be designed in such a way that it's not student centered so that it has the potential for other types of, of, uh, of demographics to want to or potentially could live there um, um, in a normal situation. Uh, we also require that if you're going to build mixed use in our core downtown, that 25% be one of those diversified uses that we can support vis-a-vis uh, -vis, um, low to moderate income, uh, 55 and over, or uh, owner-occupied. Uh, and so we've seen you know, some, some of that product come into our downtown. Um, you know, obviously the Newman Lofts uh, is a 55 and over right on Albert, where our um, former surface lot used to be on the ground floor. There's Jolly Pumpkin and Barrio and Foster Coffee and Bank of America. Upstairs is the replacement of, of you know, our surface lot with a 600, um, 600 space, uh, five-story parking structure. And then above that is five units, five stories of units that are um, uh, specifically for 55 and over clientele. Uh, and that was, that was how they satisfied our requirement. Um, ultimately, uh, we'll, we'll see how that uh, plays out. Obviously, in the, the beginning period of that, um, with the overlay of COVID, uh, they, they did not do so well in terms of renting those units. I think they're doing a, um, somewhat better, but it, I think the, you know, the success of that uh, ultimately experiment is, is yet to be kind of seen and obviously COVID continues and, and has put some pressure specifically on that portion of the market. Um, so we will see. We also have um, a 99 unit apartment building that's approved. 74 uni units of it are low to moderate income qualified. Um, that is the second phase of the, the project that put the graduate hotel and the Abbott in the ground um, and we're expecting that they'll be pulling uh, building permits at any point. They are now uh, fully approved for that. They have final site plan approval. Uh, and so we, we are hopeful that we'll see those units in our marketplace as well. But, but ultimately, you know, the, the, the key here from a city standpoint is that new units really should be marketed to a broader range than just beyond, you know, beyond just the student market. Uh, and I am starting to understand that um, there, there are other market segments that, you know, really can be economically feasible beyond just the students, um, the student market that, that ultimately, you know, we hear the most about, of course, being a college town. So I think there's some hope there. 
what is the what rental price is considered low to moderate income? That's a great question. Um, I don't have the specifics on that, but it would be basically like eighty percent of what the the rental the 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 average rental price in East Lansing. So it's still kind of on the high end when you look at the the greater Lansing area. Uh, and again, uh, some of that is kind of artificial based on what what folks can get uh, on a per bed basis. So there's there's sort of the you know there's the mechanics of LMI, and then there's the realities of you know hitting demographics in East Lansing that you know might not qualify for um, you know the 80% of AMI, but might might be able to afford something that's less than what currently um, is listed in the marketplace. If that makes sense. All right. So our final kind of big takeaway is um, is essentially a no-brainer, but it's good to remind ourselves that as the unit size increases, the price per square foot decreases. Um, and I think this is especially important to note when we think about you know families um, and and the types of um, you know types of situations where people uh, can can live in different types of housing, especially in kind of the missing middle area of the market. So um, concurrently with the, the TMA, which um, is very dense, and I've just given you, you know, really high level overview of. We also worked with uh, um, our team and a consultant to create a strategic plan for housing in East Lansing. And it, it is uh, it's very exhaustive, uh, and it includes both kind of strategies that are implementable now, things that really need a lot of investigation and then kind of a, a, a laundry list of, of ideas in terms of things we can pursue. And so in, in speaking with uh, our, uh, our council and with the Planning Commission and Housing Commission, we really decided that what, what we need to do in, in order to digest this, because there are, I mean, it's such a broad topic and we do want to engage the community as much as possible and help them understand you know, some of what we're dealing with, that we would ultimately operationalize the, the, the broad housing strategic plan into a short-term or near-term action plan. Uh, and that in and of itself is gonna be a lot of work um, over the course of probably you know, several years, um, but ultimately trying to really focus on what are the priority strategies that we can implement or explore the implementation of here in the near term uh, to really move the needle on, um, on diversification of housing and move the needle on providing opportunities for uh, our city to grow in ways that are uh, compatible with, with our community's vision. And so that's what, that's what we have created and it's really what we're working from now. Um, and um, the first, the first thing we're working on is um, is a big conversation, um, and it's it's happened in various forms um, in the city's past. Um, certainly, in the last you know thirty years, I grew up on the six hundred block of Gunson, um, and have you know seen firsthand sort of how things have changed, how the pressures of of the rental market have um, you know had effects on on our neighborhoods. And um, you know, in terms of our master planning effort that culminated in 2018, uh, our city um, 
really did a lot of thinking about the downtown. Um, it's, a, it's a longitudinal downtown. It's very long and narrow. Uh, and, and I think part of the goal um, is to provide some additional density in kind of a step down manner as you go from the downtown core kind of Grand River to the north and to those, those neighborhoods. There's a lot of, um, a lot of rental, uh, mostly student rental in that area. Um, and the economics probably don't work for uh, a one-to-one -one redevelopment of what's currently there. Um, and so without kind of significant changes to our, our zoning in this area, uh, we're probably not gonna be incentivizing a lot of uh, redevelopment. And, and so one of the, the, the visions of the master plan is really to look at, again, kind of allowing for additional density in that area as you step down to the north it's a big conversation um, uh, and, uh, and uh, one that we are now uh, empowered to, to begin. Uh, at the same time, we've just completed, um, similar to Lansing, we're on a track to um, you know, uh, look at a form-based code for the, for the city, uh, specifically to downtown. We're not, uh, we haven't adopted it and we're not as far along as, as Lansing, certainly. Uh, and we're, we're trying to learn as much as we can from, from their implementation as well. But we did go through um, a large effort at the Planning Commission and recently just completed their work and transmitted um, a, a draft of a form-based code. And one of the, one of the key takeaways um, is really kind of, you know, allowing for a mix of uses, allowing for some bonuses in terms of height and density, uh, and having some flexibility in terms of some of the setbacks um, to allow for um, kind of a product that would hit the balance of, you know, being economically feasible for the developers and uh, being of the right kind of form that uh, it would be in line with our community's goals. So really, um, this, this was envisioned in the master plan, and we now have uh, a lot of the learnings from the form-based code effort. And the idea is to uh, attempt to uh, add these elements to our zoning code, allowing the step down, uh, additional de density that steps down in this area uh, as, a, as a starting point. Um, and this is a conversation we were supposed to begin um, this month with our planning commission, but we, because of the COVID situation, uh, our city has decided to cancel all of our public meetings. Um, we didn't want to, you know, potentially put our volunteer commissioners at, at risk. So that's probably been punted. Hopefully we'll be able to get back on track with this in February. Uh, but there'll be a lot of neighborhood engagement, a lot of opportunities for the real, to real estate community as well to come and, and give us your, your opinions and feedback. We're very interested in kind of the, the economic side of this. Uh, we may be doing a, a study in terms of, you know, what that really looks like, what, what type of density would really need to exist in order to incentivize the, the redevelopment of this area. So we're very, very much interested in, in those aspects. Um, and there's another question here. What is being done specifically to attract the diversity in housing to include more families and seniors versus students, thinking of mainly building types as opposed to merely pricing? The great question, I'm gonna to touch on that um, in terms of one of our uh, strategies here. Uh, and then Troy DeLong, I've noticed that quite a few properties, multi-unit in, in the East Lansing city proper, 
have had their 2019 to 2020 SEVs jump anywhere from 20 to 40% after the rent study was completed. Is that directly related to the rent study? If so, what was the justification for this? The added tax costs after the property is sold and uncapped will almost always be passed down to the renters, hence making the housing less affordable. Are there options for owners, current and future buyers, position these largely increased SEVs? Great, great question. Lots of detail there. Um, our, our city assessor is the one that establishes um, what the equalized value and the taxable values are. Uh, and he does that um, through a number of different algorithms that, that he uses. Uh, typically for, um, for a commercial building that's you know, leased, uh, that he will get into kind of the, um, the price-based model, uh, the cost-based cost model. And I think that we were all a bit surprised by the, the jump, uh, particularly the, the developers. Um, uh, and I think that you know, ultimately the estimates uh, coming into it were conservative versus what they were able to get on a per, per bed basis. And so ultimately, I think when, when that was added into his calculus, um, you know, there was a bit of a surprise in terms of the, the taxable value of uh, certainly the, the park district project, the hub uh, and center city. Um, in terms of, uh, options people have. Um, we, we do have a board of appeals, a board of review uh, uh, that, that will hear um, cases. Typically, they're going to want to see, you know, uh, financial um, uh, documentation to show that, you know, the estimates that were made by the assessor are, are flawed in, in some way. Uh, and if, if uh, if they don't get satisfaction at the board of review, they do have the opportunity to go to the state track tax tribunal. Um, so really in terms of the, the planning aspects, you know, we can do as, as good as we can. We, we definitely speak with the, the city assessor, um, but it's always on a conceptual basis. Um, and then when something's in the ground, you know, it's really up to the, the assessor uh, on his own um, to determine based on the science uh, that, that, that he is, um, you know, an expert in to determine those values. Uh, but they do have recourse through the, the tax tribunal, ultimately. So hopefully that answers that question. And let's, let's move on. All right, so the, the big kind of takeaway, you know, and again, Kind of going on the main thrust of our of our study, which is to try to you know, diversify uh, the opportunities. We really want to intentionally address the, the equity issues that we have in housing across the board. And so the short term um, the short term strategies that we have is is one to review the existing programs that we do have that serve low to moderate income um, individuals and families. We, through our, our community development block grant program, uh, provide uh, down payment assistance uh, for folks uh, that, that want to purchase housing. We also have a, a re rehabilitation program for folks who own properties, um, but need to bring them into code compliancy or want to age in place and need things like um, accessibility ramps um, and, you know, kind of kind of other other zero access and other other types of upgrades to their to their houses. 
We also um, have a pretty significant program currently in terms of our um, in terms of our coronavirus support monies through through HUD, um, where we provide mortgage uh, and utility assistance, uh, and we have an employee home ownership program. Um, for both the City of East Lansing employees and Michigan State University employees. But um, many of these uh, have existed for a long time. The rules haven't changed much. The amounts haven't changed much. What we really need to do is, is review these existing programs uh, and, and look at are they, you know, have, a, have an honest um, evaluation of are they working? Are there things that can do, we could do better? Uh, should we change some of the, the, the number limits? Should we provide additional services beyond, um, you know, kind of the, the housing support uh, seminars and things that we do through our partners with the community, the, the capital area housing partnership, um, et cetera. Uh, and I think that, you know, we're, we're already diving into this. We are, um, we are looking into making some changes and, you know, hopefully that will increase the utilization of these programs. We're also looking at other funding sources beyond just our CDBG monies, uh, especially as you know, so much money is, is come, becoming available through the federal government and other sources. Um, so how we can really um, in, increase the utilization and, and make these more accessible to, to folks is a, is a big goal. Um, we're also, um, really wanting to work with you know realtors as well as um, people in the financial sector to identify you know what are some of the gaps in terms of borrowing and lending and what might the city be able to do to address some of these gaps um, we have a, an interesting experiment in this in this that's underway um, we have uh, through a housing project that was developed, 14 years ago, we have um, uh, $300,000 in, uh, in basically a fund that is uh, specifically earmarked to help um, convert rental units in a specific neighborhood, the Chesterfield neighborhood, to owner-occupied units. Uh, that was, it's a long story, but it was basically um, what the developer was able to provide in terms of, um, you know, in terms of the negotiation of, of their Campus Village 2 project. Um, they did convert, I think, seven properties and then ultimately uh, funded the, this fund to the rest of them. We've been working through, um, you know, for the last uh, six months or so, working to create a program that would allow this money to be used uh, in various ways um, to, sort of, uh, to, to sort of address some of the gaps we know um, specifically to converting some of these units, um, but also to deal with some of the economics of, of converting rental to owner-occupied when there's, you know, a value, a com commodity value to the rental uh, licenses themselves. Um, so we're also looking at um, what are some of the new services, funding sources, and potential partners uh, and this is where we have a lot of big ideas. Some of you may be um, familiar with the Avondale Square project. It's the 600 block of Virginia Avenue. That was a big idea from, you know, 2006-ish. 
that ultimately came to fruition where the city acted as, uh, as the developer. We, um, we stepped in and acquired, uh, I think ultimately 26 parcels. Uh, and then we partnered with both a for-profit and, uh, and a um, non-profit housing developers to redevelop that entire block. Um, and it's been incredibly successful from a transformation standpoint. Um, I'm sure some of you or most of you might be familiar with that, that, uh, that block. It's really, it's really great. And it replaced um, you know, a product that was certainly aging in place, um, past its useful life, uh, and created opportunities for 26 different families, um, several of which are low to moderate income qualified. But that's the best part of that project is you'd never know the difference because all, all of the houses are, are built to the same level of quality. Um, and so that was a big idea, very successful from a transformation perspective. But I think we learned a lot in terms of the financials, um, you know, the, the the market changed at the worst possible moment. We, you know, we purchased the the, the parcels for pretty high value, uh, and ultimately the city subsidized that project to pretty significantly through both our CDBG funds, where we took out a, a Section 108 loan, um, but also through um, some some general fund monies to help uh, finance some bonds that are still being paid off uh, to this day. Uh, and so it was, it was several million dollars of subsidy. And I think some people in our community think it was, it was a bit too much subsidy, um, but ultimately those are the types of things we need to look at is in terms of big ideas. What are, what are some of the things maybe we can learn from that project to avoid um, putting that kind of, um, exposure on the city's general fund, but to make some of these projects actually happen, some of these transformations happen. And again, that's, it's tied directly to the first, um, the first strategy, which is, you know, allowing additional density in specific areas and uh, having certain, you know, bonus bonuses available for certain things, like making opportunities for, for LMI, like, um, you know, making sure things are are uh, designed in such a way that they, they are attractive to families, uh, to seniors, et cetera. Those are some of, I think, the tools that we would have um, to negotiate with um, by making some of these, um, these things available. Did the study address short-term rentals? Um, not really. Uh, you know, I think there's, there's some information about that. Um, there, there is a lot going on in terms of the state legislation right now um, that we are paying very close attention to in terms of short-term rentals. In East Lansing, in order to have a short-term rental currently, they actually, you need to have a, uh, a rental license. One of our, you know, um, normal class one through six rental licenses are the only areas where you can have a rental that's, that's uh, short-term, like an Airbnb. So um, we don't see a lot of that in terms of our community because uh, we do have a pretty significant barrier to, uh, to rental licenses, specifically in areas that have, uh, that have overlay districts that prevent uh, either all or most license types from happening. Um, so uh, it was mentioned in the study really just in terms of um, 
the unknowns that, that are ahead. Again, I mentioned that it's there's there's currently state legislation that I believe was passed by the House and is sitting with the Senate right now that would eliminate significantly communities' ability to um, to prohibit or or even um, uh, put regulations around low, uh, around uh, short-term rentals. So that may that may make some pretty significant changes um, to East Lansing, certainly in other, other cities. We've been paying close attention to it um, and actually have lobbyists um, that are helping to um, serve the, the city's best interests in terms of that, because we're mostly worried about unintended effects it might have on our rental licensing program, um, which has been fairly successful in terms of ensuring that there's, there's an adequate level of of health and safety um, monitoring that's happening on, on our rental properties throughout the city. So we, we also are working to address housing uh, and accessibility challenges facing seniors and our residents with disabilities. Uh, specifically, we're trying to make information about, um, about kind of the um, universal uh, design guidelines that are currently part of our code for, um, for anything that's, that's new that's built, it's only four units, um, but, but ultimately also trying to build those into the conversation so people understand that actually, you know, thinking about um, adding in some of the universal design elements that maybe aren't required actually are, uh, you know, an assistant to help make things more marketable. Um, we're certainly aware that, you know, we have a growing demographic of, of older folks um, and those, uh, there's a pretty significant portion that either want to um, age in place or downsize into, you know, uh, a house that's more accessible. Um, and, and so having some of these features designed and part of a, a, a new build can ultimately, you know, help diversify the, the market for potential uh, um, buyers and renters, and that's something that we're we're trying to help with. We're also um, we're also really looking at uh, again through through the programs that we have. How can we be more supportive to those folks that need resources to, to age in place? Um, and, and ultimately, um, as we get into some of the other strategies, you know, where are some of the places that aren't currently zoned for housing where we might be able to open up zoning types that would really address some of the, the, the um, kind of more senior um, senior demands uh, and the types of designs for units for, that seniors would, um, you know, would, would desire. So that brings us to this challenge, which is, you know, our, this is our future land use map. It's part of our master plan as we kind of envision the future of East Lansing and what types of uses we'd like to see. Uh, in large sections, you, you can see uh, kind of on the, the top left, there's a big portion of blue. Uh, and that blue is really, currently it's mostly, um, you know, residential agricultural uses uh, converting into um, what is now envisioned or what is now currently zoned a lot of like office type, um, office type commercial type products. What's currently envisioned is uh, a little bit beyond just office uh, and kind of more thinking in terms of like commercial um, uh, employment type centers. 
um, but very limited in terms of, of the expectation that there'd be any availability for housing. In fact, almost none other than kind of senior nursing care type facilities. Um, uh, and so one of the, the things that we are looking at currently is whether we should open up our master plan, look at this future land use map and determine if there are areas such as, you know, anywhere in this large area there or other places in the, in the city where currently, you know, they're not envisioned for housing or they're envisioned for kind of low density type housing and to see whether some additional level of housing or uh, additional level of density might make sense uh, given what we've learned from this housing study. And so again, this is another conversation we were trying to start um, this, this month with the planning commission, um, but ultimately we'll have to probably start this next month. Uh, but this is another you know, big conversation. We're gonna need a lot of input and uh, it would be great to hear from, from realtors um, about you know, what, what types of, of housing you think uh, would be marketable in these areas. Uh, and ultimately, um, you know, if, if a change was made to the future land use map, uh, then you know, some different types of zoning uh, could potentially open up in that area, which would make you know, projects possible. We have, uh, we, you know, we've heard from folks, especially in the kind of multifamily markets uh, that are catered towards um, kind of young professionals or seniors uh, that, that, you know, they think it's viable, um, but ultimately it'll come down to, you know, what our community uh, intends for this area uh, as we balance kind of these various, various pressures on our, on our market. Uh-oh. There was an error. Let me try to open up a different. Um, so the, the next near-term action, hopefully you can all see this, is to review our single and multifamily zoning districts to consider any changes necessary to make them more effective in allowing desired housing types. Um, and so, you know, obviously this is, uh, this gets into um, uh, accessory, to, uh, I think I pulled it off the screen and I was sharing that screen, sorry. Accessory dwelling units. Um, you know, allowing for different types of, you know, like kind of cottages or, or uh, duplex, triplex, that sort of thing. Um, you know, are any of these types of, uh, of changes allowable or desired or necessary to, um, to help, you know, again, kind of address some of that missing middle? And then consider policies promoting diversified housing types for new development. Um, so currently I told you about the 25% kind of rule that we have. Um, 
we want to kind of take a look at whether that is actually being effective, whether there's some other things that we can do to, um, you know, kind of more on the incentive side, the, the bonus side uh, to help, um, you know, help move the development forces in a way that incentivizes them to really create some of these new housing types. Um, and so there's a lot of, lot of big questions and, um, you know, something that is going to take a lot of effort and a lot of time and probably some experimentation, which is already kind of underway. Um, but, uh, but ultimately, you know, it's good to be aware of, of these issues and, and you know, have some, some strategies being implemented to try to, try to address that. So the, the last sort of near-term strategy that we're working on is identifying opportunities to create more attainable housing um, for new professionals and seniors. Uh, through various programs and partnerships. Um, you know, we think a lot about uh, MSU. We think a lot about, um, you know, the types of companies that are, that are growing or locating here um, and how we can work together with them to uh, provide available housing in, in places where people maybe don't need a car or, or um, you know, can be closer to um, where they're working or be closer to the university or, um, you know, be part of our school district, be part of all of the amenities that we have, all of those things. Um, so I think, um, you know, we're, we're really trying to get creative in terms of how to identify who those potential partners are and what, what are the things that we can bring to, to bear in terms of public-private partnerships that would help to address some of the, the gaps that we have. So that was it for me. Um, I did, in the, the one that I was previously sharing, I wanted to uh, give you my contact info, which is basically um, T-F-E-H-R-E-N at cityofeastlansing.com. Uh, and also just remind you that the housing study is available at uh, cityofeastlansing.com slash housing study. Um, similar to Andrew, you know, if you guys have questions, um, please feel free to contact uh, my office. We're, we're, we always like to talk about stuff when it's a concept first, if, if possible. Um, and we can help you to sort of understand, you know, what our processes are or what, what some, of, um, uh, some of our regulations might be around whatever property you're, you're trying to deal with. Thank you very much, Mr. Fehrenbach. Um, I would like to uh, thank Mr. Fido and Mr. Fehrenbach for joining us today. Uh, thank all of you for spending the morning with us. Uh, save the date reminder for our next GMM, which is February 24th at 9 a.m. We'll be going over home warranties and inspections. That concludes our GMM for today. Everyone have a wonderful uh, morning slash afternoon. <laughs>